message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruin. Amen. Good morning. How are we? Good? Kids, we good? Yeah? All right. Right on. The Dash. We are in the Dash series. And uh, before we jump into that, uh, welcome. If this is your first time, we're glad you're here. If this is your first time in a long time, we are glad you're here. If you're a guest with us, do us a favor. In the bottom right-hand corner of your bulletin, there is a portion that is the uh, guest or visitor card. You can uh, fill that out for us. We would uh, much appreciate it. We'd love just to have a record of your visit. Uh, as I like to often say, we're not going to come banging on your door during nap time this afternoon. I promise we're not going to send you a whole bunch of junk mail. We just want to be able to pray for you and answer any questions you might have about our church. If you need more information about a ministry, you can check it in that, uh, in that card there. Here's what you do with those. You drop them in the brown wooden box at the back of this room. As you go out, there's a table, brown wooden box. That's where we as a church give our tithes and offerings, and uh, we do so with joy. Amen? Yeah, you may have noticed if this is your first time, nobody passed a plate. Sometimes we do that. We reserve the right to do that, but we haven't done it in a long time. We use the box, and uh, as you're coming or going or in the middle of worship, uh, or if you want to bring your kids in, however you want to give your offering unto the Lord, we use that box to do that. I say that to say, make that card, the guest card, your gift to us. That's all we ask. We don't ask uh, that you would uh, financially contribute anything to this ministry. Uh, that's our job, and so we support it. And we do so with joy, but we're glad that you're visiting with us. We don't, we don't believe that anyone has shown up here by accident today. God has, God has a perfect plan in all of our lives. And we are we're trying to figure out what our lives should look like. And with Jesus as our model for everything, not just the big theological things, but in the everyday things, we're in a series examining the life of Jesus, his, his everyday life, his, his regular day Lives. Not, not the day he was born and everybody came and saw him and there was a big to-do and star and a choir and not all that. Not, not, not that scene and not, not the scene later in life where he would step onto the stage of ministry. Not really even the last three years of his life where he would be doing miracles and, and then he, he, would be, uh, he would be crucified and abused. And, and, and not all that whole, whole end of his life stuff. But what about the in-between days? Uh, we're referring to it as the dash of Jesus. Uh, based on the poem that uh, several people have sent me, we're doing a series to help us figure out what our dash should look like. We're looking at the dash of Jesus Christ. And by that dash, we're, we're referring to that, that, that marking that will go between your birth date and your termination date on your tombstone. How are you spending your dash? Well, we're looking at the life, the dash of Jesus Christ to help us figure out from our model, from, from the perfect one, what direction should we be going? And so we've, we've seen several things. I'll give you the outline. If you've missed a previous week, week one, we saw that Jesus was patiently obedient. We talked about how the fact, as you read through the Gospels, he waited 30 years before he would ever take public ministry on the, on the front row. 30 years. He waited patiently. He waited obediently. It was part of God's plan, and he waited on God's plan, the Father's plan. Not only was he patiently obedient... 30 years in obscurity, in the shadows, he was, week two, we saw humbly obedient. Humbly obedient. What we meant by that was that as God incarnate, he had to submit himself to the authorities that were, were put over him as a human. His parents, his mom, his, his earthly father, the authorities, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And so we looked at some of the events in the everyday life of Jesus, how he, he was humbly obedient. He wasn't just 
he wasn't just patiently obedient and waiting all those years. He was humbly obedient. He, he submitted to authorities that were put over him. Not only that, week three, we saw that he was simply obedient. What we meant by that was that he didn't burst onto the scene when it was his time. He, he, didn't, he didn't burst onto the scene and, and, and make a big uh, to-do about his own ministry. He followed the exact plan of the Father. When we say he was simply obedient, we mean that he, he did the Father's will and the Father's timing only to those the Father directed him to go to, uh, only in the area, the geographical area, and only in the specific timing that the Father had given him. So he was simply obedient. What we mean by that was he, he followed the prompting of the Father. He would say at one point, I, I only do and say what the Father tells me to do and say. Uh, he wasn't overly ambitious. We don't have any account of Jesus knocking on every door. I mean, what does that say to us in his everyday life? He, he was simple in his obedience in that he did exactly what he was told to do. Certainly no less, but surprisingly no more. I think there's some lessons for us in his simple obedience. So patiently obedient, humbly obedient, simply obedient. Last week we talked about him being completely obedient. We, we did that by asking this question. What in the world was Jesus doing for the 18 years that we have missing from age 12 where he, he, he stayed behind at the temple... Right? teaching the grown-ups, and when he steps onto the scene around age 30 to take his public ministry into the last three years of his life. Well, what was he doing all that time? We asked the question, why did, it, why did it have to wait so long? I mean, couldn't God the Father have come up with a plan that, that sent Jesus down for a weekend? You know, born, crucified, we all get forgiven, etc. We talked about that. We talked about perhaps one of the, one of the main reasons why Jesus didn't just come down for the weekend, is that we needed him to be around for a significant portion of life so that he could identify with us in our life. Amen? Aren't you glad that Jesus was around for some stuff? He didn't just, he didn't just fly in one night and leave the next? Yeah. The Bible says that, that he is able to identify with us in every way, in all of our sufferings. That, that's good news. That's encouraging when there's plenty of suffering to go around in this world. He, he faced, the Bible says, every temptation that we, that we would face. That's good news. That I have someone that I can turn to that, that has been through the stuff that, that we're going through. So Jesus, in those years, we saw from passages like Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, that says, although he was son, son of God, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. It took some time for him to suffer those things, to be able to identify with, with, with all the things that we face in life. It, it took more than just a weekend. Like Hebrews 5, 9. The things that he suffered, those are the things that, that made him perfect. It was a process. It took, some, it took some time. Not that he wasn't already perfect. Hear me well. No, no heresy here. Not that he wasn't already perfect. But for us to be able to look at the life of Jesus and see a, a complete season of perfection in life, that is what made him, Hebrews 5.9, perfect and able to become, all those, uh, to become to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And what we... What we wrapped up with last week in looking at Jesus' complete obedience and what he was doing for all those years is that he was living a life that basically you and I could never live. He was living a perfect life. And for those 33 years, in every form, in every fashion, at every age he lived, he lived it perfectly, without flaw, without guilt. And then he was, then he was condemned for my life and your life, which we haven't lived without fault, Right? And the father looked at him and said, I'm punishing you as if 
you were one of them. We looked at the passage where he says, I've made him who knew no sin to become sin. For our sake, he did that. And so he had to live a portion so that, so that the father could look down and say, thank you very much for living the perfect life, but you're going to suffer for, for a life that, that you didn't live. You're going to suffer for a life just like one of theirs. And conversely, we ended with saying that the opposite is true for us. That when the Father looks at us, He doesn't see the imperfect life that we've lived. We get credit for that perfect span that Jesus was here on earth. I'm glad He was here for a significant portion of time because I've racked up enough sin that when the Father looks at me now, He sees not my life, not my 33 years plus now, He sees the life of Jesus Christ. And we get credit for that. It's amazing. So Jesus was completely obedient. Today, uh, today's going to be a little lighter. If you want to continue the outline to follow with patiently obedient, humbly obedient, simply obedient, and completely obedient, you might put today that he was also, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus was practically obedient. Practically obedient. What do I mean by that? I, I mean by that that he was, in his living, when we look at the life of Jesus, we don't find anything in a sense, extraordinary. Jesus lived, in a sense, right, a typical life. What I mean by that was he wasn't a monk tucked away in a corner somewhere, living this super spiritual, you know, life in a cave. He lived, he lived. He lived. And through that, we, we, we see a Jesus who was, in all practical senses, obedient. He was practically obedient. When you look at his life, I mean, you, you find normal, you find normal stuff, and I'm glad we do. I, uh, I've got a question for this week's series, uh, sermon in the series, as I did last week. We we asked, what in the world was Jesus doing for those 18 years? If you want a question for this week, it would be, did Jesus ever seem to have any fun at all? Fair question, right? As you read through the Gospels, do we find Jesus having any fun? Did he enjoy life? If we find that, I mean, it, it's pretty helpful, right? I mean, that would be good news. Sometimes as Christians, I think we assume that Christianity, that the model we have and, and the path we should follow is one where there is no enjoyment. I, I, keep, I keep something on the shelf in my office to remind me. One of the uh, college students from a previous ministry, uh, I, I think that's where this came from, he gave me a bobblehead Jesus. See that? And uh, I'm, I'm bringing that, uh, understanding that um, some of you might actually be leaning towards being offended at the moment. That I would set a bobblehead Jesus on the table this morning and, and poke him in his little head right there. Um, I don't keep it out where everyone can see it in my office. So I understand the sensitivity to that. But what this represents for me, and it reminds me very often, even in the ministry, is that maybe sometimes we take ourselves a little too serious. Maybe sometimes in Christianity, um, we take ourselves in such a way that is um, maybe not the way God would have us be taken by the world. You know, I, I, I was thinking about it. I, you know, I, uh, if, if Jesus walked in today, if God walked in, in the, incarnate in the flesh today, I mean, what would he... What would he do? What would he think about me putting his little bobblehead on the table? You know? 
And I imagined, right, in my, in my imagination, I imagined that if Jesus showed up in, in the flesh today, if God showed up in the flesh today, he'd probably grab another stool off the stage, pull it up next to me, probably have a big smile on his face, right? I mean, think about it. If, if Jesus showed up, I mean, what kind of mood do you think he'd be in? I, I, I would imagine he'd, he'd, he'd probably grab a stool and, and pull it up and, and he'd have a big smile on his face and he'd poke the little thing in the head and he'd, he'd laugh and he'd probably hold it up and say, hey, how's it, you know, is there any comparison? It's probably not. So I use that to, to just challenge what our, what our perspective is on, on who Jesus was, what his life looked like, and then therefore what, what the Heavenly Father that he represented looked like as well. Maybe we need to rethink it a little bit. I think Jesus probably wasn't as heavy as we imagined, not in weight, but in, in his countenance. I think, obviously, certainly he was serious and he was purposeful, but he couldn't have been boring. He couldn't have been boring. I, I don't think you get 12 guys to hang out with you for that long if you're a boring guy. Right, guys? Probably not. Let me give you this morning seven quick indications from uh, the Gospels, from his life, from his everyday living, that help me to know that Jesus, that Jesus might be uh, a little different than I've assumed. Number one, if we look at the parables, um, it's difficult for us because as we read the parables, Many of us, especially here in the Bible Belt, have heard the parable stories over and over and over and over, and they're like, they're like this, this, this old coin that we keep in our pocket. We're used to it. We're, we're accustomed to the shape of it. Every time we reach in our pocket and pull it out, we know it's there. And we get so accustomed to certain things that they don't have the impact that they used to have, right? Uh, I think the parables of Jesus can be that, to especially those of us who may have grown up in the church. Um, but the parables of Jesus, if you, if you really look at them and you, and you study uh, the first century and the culture in which Jesus used them and preached them and taught them, those parables, those illustrations, those stories, those examples that he used, very often, if, if you look at them with fresh eyes, are probably pretty funny. They were probably mildly entertaining to his audience. One of the things that preachers do is they try and look for things to get people to understand what the main point they're trying to make is in a creative way, right? And we call those illustrations, stories, etc. And so me bringing the bobblehead was a way for me to help you understand and be introduced to what the topic of the message was today. And we all laugh when his little head bounces, right? I'm going to put him away because nobody can concentrate now. <laughs> but Jesus used parables for the same reason. You've got you to gotta believe that he used parables in a way to gain attention, and levity and humor does that. Listen to some of the some of the lines. You'll remember some of these stories. Remember he talked about a mustard seed. The idea of a mustard seed would have that, that would have sprouted into a big bush that birds would build their nests in would probably be humorous to his to his first century listeners. Now, now let me say this: um, you're thinking, I don't understand that. That's not funny to me. I mean, we've got to we've got to understand. Today, that funny has evolved over the years, right? And not in, a, not in a great direction always, but funny has evolved. I love listening back to old Bill Cosby stuff, right? I had a record of Bill Cosby himself. We had the VHS tape, and I love I listening to Bill Cosby. Uh, 
sometime back we turned on uh, Fat Albert for our kids, and they were just like, what is this? It's not funny. You know, funny has changed over the years. You listen to some of the old comedians, and you imagine them trying to get on a stage and be funny today, they, they wouldn't be funny. People are like, that's not funny. Humor used to be much simpler, right? I mean, you see that? That's what I mean by humor, and, and funny has evolved. I imagine back in Jesus' day, you didn't, it didn't have to be this, this grand story for people to get a little chuckle, for them to be entertained, intrigued, and then interested, okay? So in the parables of Jesus, you find it, if you, if you look at it through those glasses, not through our modern what-is-comedy glasses, but if you look at it through those glasses, you'll find that, that a lot of what Jesus said probably brought a smile to his hearer's face. Let me give you a couple more examples. People in Jesus' day probably would have laughed at illustrations like putting a lit lamp under a basket. They would have chuckled and said, that's not a good idea. It would have brought a smile to their face that a person would have built a house on sand. I mean, when I hear these things, I think that Jesus is teaching these deep theological truths, and he is, and that people are just intrigued, and and they've got their brows squinted like this, and they're just leaning forward in their chairs, and, mm, yes, Jesus, preach it. Right? But it could have been that they're, you know, they're they're leaned back on their elbow around a meal, and, and these examples, these illustrations, these parables are bringing a smile to their face. Who would put a light under a basket? That's not smart. Who would build their house on sand? And they'd get a laugh. What kind of father would give their child stones instead of bread? That's funny. I imagine children would even laugh if they, if they just read it for, for face value. When Jesus spoke of having, having dust recognized in someone else's eye when you have a log in your own eye. And just that visual probably brought levity. So the parables of Jesus indicate, indicate I think, that Jesus, Jesus was, not a, was not a boring guy. Not just his parables. Number two, Jesus also embraced, we find, the sense of humor of others. I'll give you one example. A guy named Nathaniel, maybe you're familiar with him. His friends are telling him that there's this new Messiah in town. Many Messiahs would come around, so-called Messiahs. Nathaniel finds out that there's a Messiah. His name is Jesus. His friends start telling him about it, and they say he's from Nazareth. He says, wait, wait, what? Nazareth? And essentially he makes this wisecrack. Nothing, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He's essentially saying there's nothing coming out of that backwoods, fill in the blank, whatever you want to call it, town that's any good. And he probably chuckled. He probably laughed. And the story goes on, though, that Jesus hears this. Uh-oh. Well, what would you imagine that the proper Jesus, God in the flesh, would say to Nathaniel? Would he rebuke him? Don't make fun of my town, Nathaniel. Yeah, I mean, what, do you, what would you imagine he would say? I mean, a sermon within a sermon? What you imagine about that Jesus in that moment might say something about what your perspective on the biblical Jesus is. Let me back up. Let me back up as well and say, at the very beginning, I said to you, if you heard me clearly, I said very specifically, I imagine that if Jesus walked in right now, he'd probably get a stool, he'd pull it, he'd poke the little guy. That would be what I would imagine. But you know what? It's not just what I imagine. It's what we could find to be truth in Scripture that gives us the perspective on who God is. 
So be careful on what you would imagine Jesus to be, because we can very easily go down the wrong path. All right? Looking at his parables, I think, helps. But in this case with Nathaniel, Nathaniel takes a jab at his hometown. What does Jesus do? Jesus, surprisingly, he doesn't uh, respond harshly to Nathaniel. He doesn't correct him. He doesn't get upset. He says this, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other words, what Jesus could have been saying is, I kind of like this guy. This is the kind of guy I could hang out with. At least he's honest, right? What we find out is that Nathaniel probably, probably is the Bartholomew that's mentioned as the disciples. He's probably Bart of the disciples, right? Goes by a different name. He becomes one of the disciples of Jesus in all likelihood. Jesus liked him. So we, we have indications like that, that Jesus identified and embraced uh, others' sense of humor. Let me give you another one. We find in the New Testament, in Jesus' everyday life, that children flocked to him. Let the little children come to me. You remember that scene and the disciples were trying to push the children away? What was it about Jesus, though? Think about that scene. What was it about the person of Jesus Christ that kids wanted to be around him? Last night we were at uh, Grady's basketball in the season party and uh, there was another family uh, sitting uh, near us in the restaurant, and Kimberly made the comment, just kind of uh, witnessing what was going on at the table, the father and the daughter seemed to be having a good time, and she said something to the effect of, he seems like a real, real fun guy. And what she recognized was, is that this child was drawn to him. He was a fun guy. And I watched through the night, and, and, and how he interacted with her, she was naturally drawn to him. She didn't, she didn't leave that table all night. She didn't go to any of the other kids and what they were doing. She was just focused right there. What would cause these little children to flock to Jesus to give us the story of where the disciples have to say, no, get out of here, and Jesus says, no, 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 don't do that. Let the little children come to me, right? We find all kinds of lessons in that story, but don't miss the lesson that the children were coming for some reason. What would draw kids to a grown man like that? Maybe he had candy, maybe he had ice cream, I don't know. But I imagine that he wasn't a boring guy. He probably had a smile on his face. There was something about him that drew these, these innocent children. I think that tells us something about the personality of Jesus as he lived this life. Number four. Um, think about the kind of person that Jesus would be if he had zero sense of humor. If we just assumed that Jesus was upright and completely serious and he had zero sense of humor, what would that say about him? One psychologist wrote this. A person without a sense of humor would lead to that person having significant social problems. He would most likely have difficulty making social connections because he wouldn't be able to read signals from other people and would be missing cues socially. So if you, if you think about that in reverse, what, what they're saying there is, is that humor is one, of those, is one of those character traits that helps people be drawn to us. What we know about Jesus is that people flocked to him, didn't they? He had to get in the boat and paddle across water to get away from hordes of people that followed him around. And now you can argue, right? And I think, I think correctly, well, he was doing these miracles and he was God in the flesh and there had to be something supernatural about him that was drawing people like the force, right, to them, right? I mean, they were in some sort of divine trance probably by God incarnate, right? Okay, maybe. 
But I think in looking at the life of Jesus being practically obedient, just the practical life of Jesus, it probably makes good sense that he was a likable guy. Ricky was talking to me earlier and he said, you know that, that verse we talked about last week, that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature with God and man just, just drove home to him that he probably had people for some reason liking him. He had to be a likable guy. What would, um, what would a Jesus with no sense of humor, with no likability, say about the Father in heaven who Jesus was supposedly representing? What kind of picture would that paint for us of the Father in heaven through Jesus Christ if he was devoid of any kind of sense of humor, if he was completely proper and completely upright and completely stoic at all times? What would that tell us about the Father? Maybe that's, maybe that's part of the... Maybe that's part of the wrong perspective and image that, that some of us have painted in our hearts and minds about what the Father does look like. Psalm 2.4 I found in the Old Testament. Maybe there's more, but I, I found this one. It's worth noting. Psalm 2.4 says that God laughs. The Father in the heavens sits and he laughs. Psalm 2.4. Now, I have to be honest. In the context, it says that he's laughing at those who would think they would oppose him. And in the next verse it says he's going to rain his anger down upon them. Okay? But I, I give you that example to say, you know, why is it that we naturally assume that if the father laughs, he's laughing like Dr. Evil, you know, that he's just about to strike people down. <laughs> Those poor humans. Right? Why is it that that's our, that's our go-to image of the father? I mean, when the passage in Psalm 2-4 talks about how, how humans are casting off the, 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 uh, the authority of God, and it says that he sits in the heavens and he laughs, why can't it be that the Father in heaven, just knowing all that he knows, sees his children and he, and he just gets a chuckle out of this? I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's a fair perspective to have as our Father as well. If you have a Jesus devoid of any kind of sense of humor, of any kind of joy, I think it corrupts what our view of the Father should be as well. Let me give you the fifth one. Just a thought. Quick thought. Part of what it means to be created in God's image, part of what it means to be, as we would describe it, human, probably if we were to define it, we would include in some definition a sense of humor. It's part of what it is to be human. And as we are made in the image of God, the hints of things we find in our own creation point us towards who the Father is. The one in whom we were created. In the likeness of. Now sin has corrupted and, and watered down a lot of those hints that we are supposed to have in ourselves of who the Father is. But I think there's a hint of levity. I think there's a hint of humor in us to show us who our Father really is. Now, truth be told, we take humor into sinful paths. And so that doesn't point us towards the Father. But inasmuch as we were created in the image of God, apart from our corrupt sinfulness, there are hints, I think, even in our, in our humanness, in our humor, that point us to our Father. Number six. Uh, this may take a little bit deeper thinking, but I think it's worth mentioning and it may be really the most important point of all of them as we look at the person of Jesus. 
original question wasn't really, did Jesus have a sense of humor, or was he funny, right? That wasn't our original question. Although these things point towards someone who is enjoying life, the question was, did Jesus ever have any fun? Did he enjoy life? Do we have any indication that he enjoyed life? Not specifically, was he, was he a comedian? Was he funny? I mean, those things help us to understand whether or not he enjoyed life or not, right? You understand? Okay? So if we, if we really focus in on what the real question is, did he have fun? Did he enjoy life? Uh, I, would give you, I would give you one warning. We should be a little bit careful when we answer that because fun means different things to different people, right? We've already hinted to that. We absolutely know that whatever fun Jesus had, it was righteous fun. Okay? I mean, we've got to say that. That should be obvious by this point. Jesus didn't let off a little steam. He didn't, he didn't kick off his heels in ways you and I might think of, if you know what I mean, right? And we won't go too far down that path today. So what you think of Jesus having fun, as you begin to, as you begin to maybe consider a Jesus that isn't just stoic and serious, as you begin to think of a Jesus that might be a little bit less heavy, be careful that you don't equate him to fun in your own mind as a sinful being, right? That I'm sure Jesus, he did this and that every now and then, and he just let it loose sometimes. No, no, be careful. Whatever fun Jesus had, it was righteous fun. Fun often equates to foolishness, and Jesus wasn't foolish, for sure. In our day, fun often equates to sin, and Jesus certainly wasn't sinful, right? A better question then is, did he enjoy life? Because we know from Scripture that joy is an attitude that God wants for us as his children. We're told to rejoice. Joy is a character trait that he wants growing in us as his children. And if that's what the Father wants for us, and Jesus lived that time span of life, that snapshot of life, to experience everything that we're to experience and to be a model for everything that we are to become, you've got to, you've got to then assume that Jesus was perfect at being joyful. I won't go too deep into this, but Jesus was perfect in every way, and that includes his happiness, his joy. He enjoyed life in perfect ways. Probably the most seen in Scripture would be that Jesus enjoyed life through relationships. This could be a whole standalone sermon on another day, and I've talked to you guys about relationships over and over and over. It seems to come up everywhere we look in Scripture. But what you find in the life of Jesus, if you were to look at his everyday life, is that he enjoyed being around people. Not only did people enjoy being around him, but he put himself around people. So when we talk about did Jesus enjoy life, we have to look at his encounters with people and how he liked being around people. We find that he went to weddings. We find that he enjoyed his family. We find that he loved his mother, his family, his extended family. We find him in numerous meals where he's sitting with other people. Meals in his culture especially were relationship builders and they were, they, were, they were opportunities to enjoy life. So when you see or you imagine in your mind's eye Jesus sitting at a meal with everyone, don't imagine that he's always teaching. Don't imagine that he's always sitting proper. Don't imagine that he's always stoic, that he never cracks a smile. In fact, Start to imagine just the opposite. Jesus was not the most boring person in the room or at the table. 
If anyone knew how to enjoy this life, he did. Let me give you one more and we'll be done. John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that, that ye may have life and have it to the full. Now, obviously, this means more than physical life. But I want you to know it doesn't necessarily mean anything less than it either. When we hear that verse that Jesus, Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, we obviously know that he's not just talking about the physical, he's talking about the spiritual life. And, and very often we, we need to say that in that way because we often get just so focused on our physical life that we forget that there's a spiritual life and that there's an afterlife and that we have to answer to a creator God and all that. And so Jesus has come to give us life and life to the full, meaning that we could have eternal life and that we need salvation and that it's, it's not just about this life here on earth, right? That verse does mean that. But don't, don't in, in emphasizing that, don't miss the fact that, that I think it would be proper and sufficient to say that Jesus also meant that he wanted us to have a full life right here, right now. I mean, I don't, I don't think he's just playing a game with us. I don't think he used those words as, as a trick statement to say, I've come that you might have life and life to the full, and then bait and switch and pull the rug out from under us and say, but not here. Certainly it means more than here, but certainly it doesn't mean less than here. We might need to rethink who this Jesus is. Maybe you need a little bobblehead Jesus somewhere, somewhere in your life to remind you. And maybe we take this thing way too seriously. You know, here's the real point. I'm going to give you three takeaways for today's message. As we've looked at what I've called today, Jesus is practically obedient. Here are the three takeaways. Number one, Christians shouldn't be the most boring people in the room. Because I don't think Jesus was the most boring person in the room. I don't know what kind of Christianity you, you are walking the path of, but I don't think it needs to be the kind of Christianity that means that we are always serious, we are always proper, except in the proper ways. You, you understand what I'm saying? That we're, always, that we're always stoic. Can I tell you, I, man, I'm preaching this message to myself. I'm a pretty serious guy all the time, uh, a lot of times. You know, I'm hard to read sometimes. I, I've been accused of that. Um, sometimes I have to, I'll just confess, sometimes I have to put in my notes here that at the end of the sentence, there's a little smiley face. <laughs> Early on, the guy who helped me uh, start this church, who was our worship pastor starting, uh, just after a few weeks, he said, hey, listen, um, sometimes, smile. That'll help. Okay, let me make a note of that. Smile <laughs> right here. And if you go through my notes, you're going to find some. Christians shouldn't be the most boring person in the room. Number two, Christians shouldn't be sour in the name of Jesus. You ever run into these people? These Christians who are just sourpusses, just drain the room, just miserable about everything? In the name of Jesus. Woe is me. This life. Man, come on. Who wants to be a part of that? Jesus came that we would have life. Abundant life. I, I don't think that's just in the future. It's got to be. In all of the suffering and all that we have to go through here, yeah, I get that. This is not a perfect life. We're, we're, we're corrupted by sin. But I think, I think that, that Jesus found ways purposefully to enjoy the life that God had given us here 
the remnant of whatever we could find happiness in. I think he wanted us to enjoy it. Last one. Christians shouldn't raise little Christians to be boring or sour big Christians. Parents? i got to think about my example in my home that I do not want my Christianity to come across to my little boys as boring or sour or stoic always. I hope that I and my wife are painting a portrait of Jesus Christ and therefore of the Father in Heaven that shows them that they can climb up in their daddy's lap and, and just smile up at him sometimes and know that he'll smile back. Did my microphone fall off? Sound different. Amen? All right. We got a baby in here. Speaking of babies, Crawfords? Crawfords? Andy, where's your child? In the cry room? Now, this child doesn't really like me. I'll just go ahead and tell you this. Um, it's not just me. I, I, was, I was starting to wonder if this message was you know, being played out as this child will probably cry when I hold her. She lives across the street from me. I try and make amends. I try and get in good with her. But um, Caroline Grace Crawford sometimes makes... Oh, is she? Cadence. I, that's why I asked you to write it down for me. I did write it down. All right, and now she's sleeping. So I'm not even going to transfer here. Okay. Okay. Um, Andy and Allison Crawford. I'm getting off on tangents here. Can't even read Andy's writing. Here we go. Um, we're doing a baby dedication here to wrap things up today. Very often as we dismiss, we like to pray for someone in our family. And so as we, as we dismiss, we're going to pray for Cadence. Okay? But we're not really praying just for Cadence. We're praying for mom and dad, Andy and Allison. All right? And I want to say we've got great grandparents here, great aunts and uncles. We've got, we've got a whole myriad of family here. So if you've come for this, family, friends, why don't you stand up while we pray? Okay, that'd be now. We're going to do that now um, because we're going to pray for you as well because the dedication here is not, not that we are, we are praying just for this child. We're praying for those who have surrounded this child and been entrusted with this child's life to say that we, they, are committing to God that they will, they will dedicate this child's life back to the Lord who has blessed them. Does that make sense? All right. So that's what we're going to be praying for, and you're going to be praying for that as well. And as a body of Christ, as they are part of this body, you're part of that extended family that has responsibility entrusted to you by God to raise this child back to the Lord. So let's do that right now, okay? Father God, Cadence is waking. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that this is. We thank you for the blessing of life and... Um, we thank you for those, those little moments of smiles. Those are the best moments, Lord, especially at this age. Those are the best moments. I think they teach us something about your heart, God. I think the warmth that that creates in our heart, I think it teaches us something about who Jesus was, and I think it teaches us something about who you are, Father. I think that's part of why you make us parents, so that we understand your great love for us as Father. But Lord, as we, as we get ready to, to close here and wrap up, we, we lift to you not just Cadence and, and her life. We, we certainly ask, Father, 
that you would bring her to a saving knowledge soon. Bring, bring her to a saving knowledge of your grace, Lord, early, early in her life. We, we say in this prayer that we trust you for her salvation. Would you do the work in the darkness of her heart? Would you plant those seeds early and often using us, Lord? Would you plant those seeds and would you water them in the darkness? And would you cause them to sprout to life? That she would be born once again into the newness of life. Lord, I pray for Andy and Allison. I thank you for their heart and their commitment to to raise this child to fear you and to know your glory and your grace. Lord, I pray that you'd give them strength. I pray you would give them um, the wisdom and the discernment that they will need as parents to do the job you've entrusted to them. Lord, I pray that they would be, be the kind of parents that you want Cadence to have. And I pray that they would represent you well. Because as this child grows in their home, they're going to look to, to mom and dad for who you are, number one. And I pray that they find a perfect picture of Jesus, your son, your representative here on earth. Lord, I pray for the, the whole family, that they would, they would feel the weight and step up to the responsibility that there is to raise a child committed to you. And for us, a church, a church family that surrounds this couple, we ask that you would give us appropriate ways to undergird Andy and Allison, to support them, and to come alongside as as outside examples beyond the home, examples of who you are, your grace and your glory. Use each of us, Lord. And one day we'll, we'll say a prayer of thanks when Cadence comes to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We'll look back on this day as a foundational day and we'll give thanks and glory to you. But as we leave this place, we confess, even on our way out, that we have decided to follow Jesus. Lord, we need to know. We need to know more about your Son. I pray we've gotten a little bit better picture this morning. So that in our Monday and Tuesday, we become conformed in the likeness of the firstborn. Even Jesus, our cornerstone. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.